I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello and welcome to the Napoleon Assist. It's the 15th of June, day 11 of Waterloo Remembered and the first day of the Waterloo campaign. Today we're looking at the mechanics of war and the three systems of command at Waterloo and I'm delighted to say that I'm joined by Dr Will Fletcher from King's College London. Will, how are you? Hi Zach, uh, very good thank you and thanks for inviting me on. Uh, looking forward to talking about all things Waterloo today. Tell us a little bit about your research. Um, yeah, so I've just finished my PhD a few, uh, few months ago uh, looking at the British Army staff system during the Napoleonic Wars and basically looking at how headquarters worked, um, not just in Wellington's army, but um, across the British Army during the period, and things like military education and patronage, and basically how specifically the Quartermaster General's Department became the operations branch of the British Army staff system during the period. Um, yeah, and that's basically what my PhD research has been on. You're turning that into a book, aren't you? Yes, that's the current plan. Um, just looking now at um, sending off book proposal um, to publishers to try and get it turned into a book. And one of the things with the book proposal is actually adding um, a chapter on the Waterloo campaign. So I'm just starting to look into the Waterloo campaign. Um, my PhD ended in 1814, so I'm now just adding on um, another year to the British Army's experience and looking at the uh, Waterloo campaign, so that's quite relevant for today's discussion, I think. It absolutely is. Fantastic. And people can follow you on Twitter, can't they? Yes, that's right. Um, I'm 1815 Fletcher, um, so try and post uh, as regularly as I can about my research and keeping a foot of all things Napoleonic, so yeah, people can follow me on there. Fantastic. If you're not following Will already, you definitely should be. Now, each of the three armies um, at Waterloo had quite different characters in command of them in, in the form of Wellington, Luca and Napoleon. How do you think their respective personalities influenced the way in which the campaign unfolded? Because Napoleon's initial plan strikes me as kind of the classic inspired manoeuvre that nobody's expecting, which ironically is sort of exactly what Napoleon was known and feared for. Yes, no, that's a big and interesting question about the three personalities. I mean, the way I see it, their personalities really um, lend themselves to three important things. Um, firstly, their style of command and leadership, um, which is obviously different between the three. Um, secondly, their understanding of what exactly they were trying to achieve during the campaign and their motivations for the campaign. And thirdly, feeding into that is their sort of concept of operations of how they're actually going to fight this campaign. So starting with Napoleon, his uh, style of command um, was very much sort of authoritarian, um, but he was certainly charismatic and um, but I think importantly for this campaign um, he, was, uh, he was sort of feared by his subordinate commanders um, about 
wanted to sort of dictate um, decision making and this particularly became an issue um, during this campaign at the operational level um, where commanders um, were obviously fearful and had to have Napoleon's final approval on decisions they made. In terms of his aims for the campaign, um, he obviously was on a personal level trying to secure his dynasty and, you know, um, hopefully, you know, bring peace and end the War of the Seventh Coalition as quickly as possible to try and regain his position in France. Um, so with that in mind, his sort of concept for operations um, was very much his um, old classic Napoleonic style of things, using the core system and being operationally flexible, um, creating battle at a decisive point with and using his reserves. Um, but, and his idea would be for in the um, Netherlands theatre to basically try and assemble six army corps and um, plus cavalry reserve corps in that theatre to overwhelm um, the allied armies that were operating um, in Belgium. And basically do this through maneuver, concentration of force and above all speed. And then once in that theatre, um, he'd use his famous strategy of the central position to achieve local superiority and hopefully defeat both of those armies in detail and staff work would obviously be key to that. So that was sort of Napoleon's, um, how his personality and understanding of the war, um, I think were important for the campaign. And then, uh, so moving on next to Wellington, um, obviously his style was slightly different to Napoleon's and he was more respected and trusted um, both by his men, but also by um, the political leaders of the day that um, were asking him to once again take command of not only the British field, main field army, but also allied armies attached to it. Um, and in terms of his style at headquarters, he was he was dominant at headquarters, um, but he wasn't as dictatorial as uh, Napoleon was, but he certainly ran things and kept a close eye on um, staff work, for example. Um, in terms of his aims and understanding for the campaign, um, obviously um, he'd been part of the sort of um, the Congress of Vienna and understood the nature of the coalition war that was being fought and he was essentially waiting for the Austrian and Russian armies to um, appear and along with the Prussians awaiting in Belgium before launching um, their attack and traditionally um, the British sort of strategic situation of defending the sort of Scheldt estuary was very much um, something that he had in mind um, and he was obviously worried himself famously about Napoleon imposing a different strategy of manoeuvre, that of the indirect approach and cutting his lines of communication. Um, and that was the, obviously something that people will be well aware of. Um, and his sort of Napoleon, uh, Wellington's concept of operations um, was he was essentially before the campaign waiting to go on the offensive, ideally, um, but he was you know, able to be defensive if necessary. Um, and obviously he'd be working with allies um, most closely to in the Prussian army, um, but he knew this would be a war uh, working with allies, which he was used to doing um, in the peninsula, working with the Spanish armies, um, and also obviously the integrated Portuguese army. And then moving on to uh, Blücher, his style of command was very charismatic, um, in a sort of similar way to, I guess, Napoleon, he was charismatic leader, um, and known as a Hussar general, famously Marshal Fords, he was known as, um, but I think something that a lot of people often um, overlook or when they play up the Hazar narrative a bit too much is that Blücher was a serious um, military scientist and he'd 
been very influential in the reforms of the Prussian army um, after the defeat at Jena Auerstadt in 1806. And that feeds into the sort of staff element of that. And he was very influential in all of that. So he wasn't just a leader that wanted to, even though that was a big part of his motivation for fighting um, to get to grips with the French, but he was also a ser serious military scientist. And, and that's something I was looking at um, in my PhD as sort of part of the Prussian um, rise in, the, in their staff system. And Blücher was an important uh, figure in that. Um, and his, his aims, obviously, again, were working with the Allies to defeat Napoleon, but also um, the Prussian idea of trying to um, have a better standing in sort of European situation, Congress of Vienna, obviously before the Hundred Days campaign, uh, Prussia had very many um, issues that it felt wasn't being heard um, by the other Allies at the Congress of Vienna. And so um, from a Prussian point of view, and Blücher uh, was keen to show that Prussia was a key player in defeating Napoleon uh, this second time around and that obviously feeds into um, future debates of the Congress of Vienna and like Wellington his concept of operations was um, hoping to go on the offensive when the other allies join them but prepared to um, you know work in the defensive if, if necessary and obviously as the campaign unfolds Blücher is famously very loyal to Wellington and the, and the allied cause trying to keep um, the armies together and um, so I think that's a key thing that comes out in the campaign. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting what you say about motivation and the different ways in which each of those commanders interacted with their men. Because as you say, Blücher and Napoleon seem to be much better at connecting with their men on a personal level. Um, Wellington famously said that Napoleon himself was worth 40,000 men on the battlefield because of the inspiring impact that his presence had and the fact that his men were much more harder. But then Wellington said of himself that when he pitched up at the crisis points in a battle, the men would fight in a way that they wouldn't normally fight because they knew and trusted him as a commander who always put himself in the point of greatest danger. Um, and yet Wellington was unashamedly kind of aristocratic, quite kind of snobbish really, in his views about the rank and file. So they, they think about their men very differently. And yet for all that Wellington might have called his men the scum of the earth for a variety of reasons that we won't go into, but not necessarily just because of his view of their social status. Wellington was much more frugal with his men's lives, as opposed to Napoleon, who famously said that he wasn't particularly bothered about the losses, provided he achieved his objective. What's your sense about how that influences and kind of balances out over the course of Waterloo? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting question about their attitudes to their men's lives. And obviously, um, there's a lot being done on this in terms of Napoleon having an uh, understanding of the amount of, you know, thousands of conscripts he had coming in each year that he could use um, for fighting wars in this sort of blasé way. Um, he fought wars that, you know, he didn't seem to care too much about casualties. Um, and I think one of the interesting things in terms of Wellington's view comes back to this idea about him being a defensive general um, in terms of, yes, he wanted to preserve the lives of his men. And I think that is certainly true. And throughout the Flintsy War, you see um, various measures or during various campaigns where he's either upset about um, losing large numbers of men but also as much as possible in an operational sense he's trying to preserve their lives and not make, take any unnecessary risks but I think in terms of being defensive general that's not exactly the same thing and often he saw the offensive as a good way of um, you know achieving what they needed to do and there may be casualties 
Um, but obviously Waterloo's really instilled this myth that he was defensive general that liked to, you know, shelter his troops behind the reverse slope. Um, whereas in the peninsula, you know, there's only various occasions where this sort of happens, you know, Vimira obviously famously and Bazarco, um, and then later on, you know, maybe Soran. But um, it's not a sort of general tactic that Wellington uses on a regular basis, whereas Waterloo, he obviously does use this and he wants to protect his men and they lie down behind the ridge, etc. Um, and that's obviously a sensible precaution, but it's not just because he wants to protect his men, he's always a defensive general. So I think the two things um, are sort of different issues, which is uh, quite interesting how historians have often written up uh, Wellington as being defensive, mainly just to protect his men. Let's, let's talk about the staffs specifically, because a good staff officer has to deal with the personality of their commander as well as doing their job well. Starting with the individuals, first of all, who were the principal staff officers within the respective armies during this campaign? Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah, so it's a very interesting uh, point, this, because um, during this period and what my PhD was looking at was how this so-called scientific approach to war developed across um, all the European um, militaries during this period and how there was this partnership really between a chief of staff by whatever name that might be for example in the British army it's the quartermaster general um in the French army it's normally known as the major general but translated you know as chief of staff and again with the the Prussians really have quartermaster generals and then chiefs of staff um so there's a central partnership between commanders and their chief of staff and how you translate a commander's um concept of operations and his art of war into actually executing them in reality which is more where the science of war comes in, of how you move troops around um, in a sort of operational science rather than sort of technical science of artillery, um, which is a slightly different type of military science. But for the actual Waterloo campaign, um, each of the three commanders um, actually really has their B team of uh, chiefs of staff. Um, and all three of them don't really have the person they would have ideally had um, in that position. Um, so famously, first of all, Napoleon, um, and his famous chief of staff, Berthier, um, is not obviously at the campaign. Um, and there's a whole sort of story there about why he wasn't present. I mean, he died before the battle itself, but long before that, he could have um, been employed by Napoleon to be his chief of staff, um, but wasn't. So it wasn't just a case that he died, but he hadn't um, Didn't he refuse? been appointed to that position. Yes, well, this is the thing. So I think having sort of looked into it obviously he does there's this thing about where whether he's assassinated etc but I think Berthier being sort of very honourable man and, and not just Berthier but a lot of the French hierarchy have obviously pledged their allegiance to the French monarchy when it's restored and I think he sits very uneasy with this idea of switching back to Napoleon um, after having done that even though he'd served him from you know 1796 as chief of staff all the way through um, but he just sat very uneasy with this idea of Napoleon escaping and you know, all the drama that that had caused in France. So yeah, he'd refused to serve Napoleon. And this left Napoleon in a very difficult situation in terms of who to employ instead, because essentially Berthier, yes, had done this job for Napoleon really, really well over the years, but equally there wasn't anyone. Berthier had been so dominant that there hadn't really been a protégé trained up to take over. There was obvious, I mean, there was lots of people in his staff, but also Berthier being a marshal, that automatically meant that um, one of the other marshals would have to um, fill that position rather than some more junior officer um, who may be actually better placed to actually execute 
that sort of role um, at Hatfield Marshall. So famously, Marshall Salt is appointed. Um, and in terms of his experience, I mean, Marshall Salt has fought against uh, Wellington in the Prince's War and, you know, relatively effectively um, knows his enemy. I mean, interestingly, he's dined with Wellington um, in, during the peace in between um, and he knows his sort of adversary. But in terms of his um, attributes as a chief of staff, um, it turns out to be fairly catastrophic appointment. Um, and obviously, with hindsight, it's easy to say that. But um, I think even Napoleon would hopefully admit that it was it was a bit of a risk putting Salt in that position early on um, when others may have potentially done well. But the, at the end of the day, the, the main problem was Berthier wasn't uh, present. Wasn't Suchet um, a potentially more obvious choice? Yeah, Suchet's, um, and obviously Suchet had been a very um, effective marshal, um, you know, down on the east coast of Spain, and he'd proved himself very well, and that, that would have been probably a, a logical choice. But as I say, I think it's interesting, I've, I've read quite a lot about sort of alternatives, and sort of going to sit on the fence in terms of, there wasn't really, a, there wasn't really an alternative to Bertier, because no one had done that role. <laughs> um, in, for any length of time. So in, in some ways, the weakness was no one was ready to step in. I mean, say Bertie had been killed in an earlier campaign. Um, that would have also been an issue, I think, of organising the army. And, uh, and I think another important point isn't just the practicalities of staff work and organising the army, but Bertie, his real strength was knowing how to interpret Napoleon's ideas and also knowing when to sort of ignore unnecessary sort of flicking of ideas in a, in a campaign and trying to keep everyone informed what was going, keep everyone sort of focused on the objective rather than, as we see during the 100 days, there's lots of changes of decisions, there's lots of um, comings and goings and difficulties, um, which if Bertie had been there, he'd have been much more controlling the situation rather than sort of trying to be very reactionary to everything that was happening, either from Napoleon or from the subordinates. Um, and one other brief thing on Napoleon's um, sort of the key personalities. Um, Napoleon, I mean, another issue really is the command system that's in place for the campaign, because he has this, obviously there's the famous core system that's been in place and um, used by the French um, very effectively. But um, for this campaign, he has Ney and Grouchy, who aren't actually in command of a core themselves and are basically in this middle level between Napoleon's imperial headquarters and the corps below them. And so they each get, you know, attached different um, corps to deal with. But it was basically adding a new layer in between Napoleon and the corps system, um, which had actually happened previously. Um, but that was a big problem, especially, you know, with an, un an unfamiliar staff um, with SALT. Um, that this really had problems. And Ney, for example, um, famously it had Jomini, um, famous military um, theorist, and as his chief of staff through the Napoleonic Wars, and Jomini wasn't there um, for Ney for this campaign, um, having switched sides. So Ney was also missing his chief of staff. Um, um, had a fairly inexperienced chief of staff in the sense of the French system was commanders would always keep their chiefs of staff with them. So whichever level they were working, they would take their chief of staff. So Grouchy, who is, you know, the most junior marshal, um, actually took a chief of staff who was fairly junior as well. Um, but he then ended up directing a series of corps um, under him with a fairly junior chief of staff. So 
that was another sort of issue with the French system was it wasn't the most experienced chief of staff stayed in position. It was commanders took their chiefs of staff with them. If that makes sense. Um, so that was the, the French system. Um, but then other personalities, um, obviously with Wellington, as I was saying, this is a B team all around because Wellington ideally would have had Murray as his chief of staff um, or quartermaster general. But um, I mean, interestingly, Murray becomes the British Army's first chief of staff just after Waterloo when they first appoint someone to that appointment. And clearly, you know, the quartermaster general throughout my whole PhD, that that is what we these days identify as the chief of staff. That's the role, even though he's called the quartermaster general. Um, but Murray's in Canada because um, a lot of obviously famously regiments, but also personalities have been sent over to America and Canada. Um, so Murray's obviously um, would have been the ideal choice, but he wasn't. Um, available to be back in time um, and I think one of the important things here is the importance of Murray and the role of the Chief of Staff at Wellington because um, various historians have sort of written about how Wellington was so dominant at headquarters which is certainly true um, but often people are too much in the side that Murray was or the Chief of Staff was basically just writing out Wellington's ideas and whereas Murray was actually a crucial personality um, in the same way that Bertier was, um, in terms of actually making Wellington's ideas a reality. And yes, Wellington went into detail about various things like um, supplies um, and operational movements, but Murray was a key personality that actually made that all work. And it wasn't just a case of him being some sort of secretary that just wrote out his ideas. Um, and this is shown, I think, really well in the retreat um, from Burgos, where Gordon, Gordon takes over instead of Murray. And it, the whole system basically falls apart um, and it shows how important that role was. And it's not just a case of writing out Wellington's ideas. Um, and Wellington famously said about he had a very, very inexperienced staff. Um, but this was on the 8th of May and there'd been significant personalities that had turned up by the time of the Waterloo campaign and the next, the following month. Um, so, yeah, I think, um, so basically Hudson Lowe was going to be his chief of staff. And luckily, Wellington manages to get rid of Hudson Lowe, who would have been not uh, very well experienced to fulfil that role under Wellington. And instead, famously, Delancey, William Delancey, um, takes the post. And he's a pretty good um, second person to have as a chief of staff instead of Murray. Um, he's certainly a scientific. Um, he's educated at High Wycombe, like the rest of the scientifics. Um, and he had very good experience. I um, mean, he served with Wellington all the way through the peninsula from 1809 and um, without going home once um, and stood in for Murray um, on the two times he'd been home for sustained periods um, and knew exactly how Wellington's system should work. It was a case of trying to recreate it as best as possible for the Waterloo campaign. Um, and also just below uh, Delancey, there were various other key personalities, obviously uh, Rebecca as the Prince of Orange's chief of staff. Um, he was very experienced, but also um, the, Rebecca had a British officer with him, um, Alexander Abercrombie, um, who'd been a very experienced um, quartermaster general in the Peninsula War. And I think he was key in terms of Prince of Orange's first corps staff. Um, Abercrombie was very well known with the Lancey and they worked very well throughout the campaign, along with Rebecca, um, in terms of uh, dealing with Prince of Orange's corps, um, which was crucial throughout the campaign. And then moving on to the Prussians. So Blücher, um, again, had his basically second choice of chief of staff in Gneisenau. 
Um, his ideal choice would have been uh, Scharnhorst, where he'd been killed in a cavalry charge at the Battle of Lutzen in 1813. Um, but Gneisenau was a good replacement. Um, he'd been a protégé of uh, Scharnhorst. He was a Saxon officer. Um, and he'd really developed the Prussian staff system even since Scharnhorst's day, very much um, emphasising this idea more towards collective responsibility amongst the chiefs of staff in the Prussian system. Um, and he'd been very effective in this in the campaign that led to Leipzig in 1813. Um, so he was well experienced. Um, and there's this sort of issue about him working with allies. And um, he'd obviously had experience of this um, through you know, the 1813 campaign um, and other campaigns. Um, and obviously would have to work with the British this time, which is um, an issue about how well uh, Gneisenau respected the British. But Scharnhorst, his big protege, I think it's really interesting, certainly did um, have a big regard for the British. He, Scharnhorst had worked with them in, in the 1790s campaign. Um, and interestingly, my PhD, through my PhD research, found that Scharnhorst had actually been asked to become the commandant at the New Staff College at High Wycombe when Jarret, the first commandant, um, died. And the British were trying to get Scharnhorst to take over that post, um, which he considered but then wanted to keep loyal to the sort of Prussian cause. Um, and Gneisenau, similarly, both, both Scharnhorst and Gneisenau visited England more than one occasion, and they, they certainly had links with the British and the British sort of staff system and scientifics, and there was certainly a common bond in that sense. Um, and at, at a lower level, uh, the Prussians obviously had a whole system of chiefs of staff that they'd been building on. Um, and just one other one to highlight really is um, Clausewitz, who's um, third cause, Chief of Staff, um, who aren't directly involved in Waterloo, but they're over at Wav. Um, but yeah, there's a series of good um, Chiefs of Staff in the Prussian system. But overall, I think between the three armies, it's a case of the B team of Chiefs of Staff of Salt, Delancey and Gneisenau. And I think one of the big uh, factors of the campaign is who has the best B team. And I think it's certainly the Allies um, and Napoleon really struggles without Berthier. On a personal level, how well do Wellington, Blucher and Napoleon get on with their staff officers? Because that relationship is, is one of trust and, or needs to be, one of trust and mutual respect. Yeah, that's an interesting question. I mean, Napoleon and Salt is obviously different to Napoleon and Berthier had been, so that's a real issue um, because, you know, Napoleon had very much understood that Berthier knew um, how to deal with him and Bertie knew how to deal with Napoleon so that was certainly strained between Napoleon and Salt and we see this throughout the campaign of Napoleon sending off his own orders without even you know telling Salt what he's doing and that, that's a real issue that there's not that personal trust there so that's an issue. Um, Wellington and Delancey is interesting I think obviously there is Wellington understands the role of the quartermaster general um, which is something he actually struggles with to begin with in the Peninsula War giving control to Murray um, and he become, becomes um, becomes painfully clear that he does have to give more control as his army gets bigger especially um, and with Delancey he understands Delancey's role and how he needs to be used but I think he, he realises also that Delancey isn't isn't Murray and uh, there's, there's quotes in the peninsula where you know uh, Wellington sees this, a few issues with Delancey but throughout the campaign there is nothing obvious that particularly means that Wellington goes over the head of Delancey, so they work quite well together. Um, and I think famously the Gneisenau-Blucher uh, partnership is the, the strongest one in terms of 
both in terms of how the Prussian system works, but also on, on their personal level and understanding of how that works. Bluka um, and Gneiss now work very much as a team, um, with one being very much the figurehead leader and the other one um, the chief of staff that makes things actually happen. So I think three quite different relationships between the three commanders and their chiefs of staff throughout the campaign, which again plays very much into the developments of the actual campaign itself. Yeah, I mean, what's often not appreciated about military campaigns and what you've highlighted quite clearly for us is that behind every successful commander is a highly efficient staff system. What challenges did the staffs have um, of all the armies? Because they had to deal with very different issues over the course of their campaigns because the campaigns sort of unfold in different ways and they have to do different things depending on their relative strategic situations. Yeah, no, that's a really good question. Um, they each have you know have diff different um, specific problems to deal with and um, I think on the sort of overall level it's, it's important again to emphasize how the staff system is actually working in terms of um, here a lot of sort of or written historians that are quite um, dismissive of the idea of how the system actually works in terms of it's almost as if commanders just write notes to their ADC you see them write off and give them to another commander and um, which does occasionally happen um, but most of the time it goes through um, the chief of staff and his operational staff, for example, in the British Army's Quartermaster General's Department, um, and ADCs are obviously used as messengers. Um, but each of them, um, to overcome all these problems that they have to deal with, have a sort of sophisticated system in place um, of the orders process, and that all relates to how do you, A, translate um, commanders or concepts of operations into actually executing them, um, but also, yeah, just the practicalities of moving large bodies of troops around the theatre um, and all, all the staffs are really dealing with um, the Clausewitzian friction and war which is famous in terms of um, issues that are unexpected coming up and having to overcome them and um, so for the French um, Napoleon staff um, and the Salter obviously trying to execute this strategy of the central position um, I mean I think what's particularly interesting uh, with the French staff is they're actually very effective in the early stages um, of the Hundred Days campaign in terms of before the campaign launches um, the invasion of Belgium. They actually managed between the uh, from the 6th of June they've actually assembled six um, army corps as well as escorting cavalry very effectively between the 6th and 14th of June um, which and um, the speed with which they managed to put them on the Belgian border takes the Allies by quite a big surprise. And so in the sort of strategic level, their staff work, I think they deserve quite a lot of credit for how that's managed. Um, but when the campaign actually starts with the invasion of Belgium and this um, strategy of the central position is actually trying to work to split the two um, Allied armies apart, that's where the staff really struggle to um, keep coordinating the different um, movements of the a different army corps um, and that's really where they struggle um, for Wellington well we're taking Wellington and uh, Blucher's armies together um, they're they're very I mean initially intelligence is a bit of an issue for them they they know that Napoleon's joined his army and that an invasion is imminent but I think interestingly for Wellington's point of view he doesn't quite appreciate what the tempo of the campaign will be in terms of how fast Napoleon um, wants his army to move and his um, and how fast which I think um, the Prussians and any European um, armies had much more appreciation of 
you know, one minute you're sat in a position and the next minute everything's completely changed and Napoleon's sort of behind you or split your armies up or got in between you and a friendly formation. Whereas Wellington in the peninsula had been fighting Napoleon's marshals, um, but he'd never come across this idea of how fast um, armies could potentially move um, if needed. I mean, obviously Wellington himself moved very fast in the Victoria campaign um, and in the Pyrenees, again, things were moving very quickly. Um, but I think going from a standing start, um, waiting for something to happen, um, I don't think, I think that's a major issue is Wellington um, and his staff obviously have to suddenly up their own game to sort of try and keep pace with the tempo that Napoleon wants to fight this campaign with, which I think is really interesting. Um, and I think for the, for the staff work, for the Allies, a key thing is obviously working together. So um, each of the um, he Allied headquarters has a officer, the liaison officer for each other, so uh, Muffling for the uh, Prussians, who's with Wellington's headquarters, and Hardidge, who's a um, scientific um, from the Quartermaster General's Department, who's with um, the Prussian headquarters, um, relaying British um, aspects. So, um, the Brit yeah, the staff are basically trying to deal with working together and working out what Napoleon's going to do, because eff effectively, the initiative is with Napoleon for this and the, the Allied staff have to be very reactionary, which is quite a difficult thing to do. It doesn't help, of course, that Wellington's constantly got his eye, for obvious reasons, on that potential for Napoleon to swim around his flank and cut off his communication with the Channel ports. And, yeah. and certainly it, when you look at the deployments for Catra Bras and, and that initial sort of enterprise of the camp, campaign when the British do, well, the Anglo-Dutch army, we should say, do start to concentrate. The Wellington seems to be quite hesitant to commit fully to um, move it, to concentrate on Catrebrow because he has that concern that actually there might be that dive towards Mons. What's it like for Blücher? Yeah, I mean, both, both the Allies have got their own um, individual sort of things to worry about. So, um, I mean, Blücher... Their line of communication, obviously, back through Liège and up to um, Germany through that way. Um, and that's something that Gneisenau is continuously worried about in terms of... He, and I think Gneisenau, um, which we might come on to as we talk a bit more about the campaign later on, but one of the things he's got to worry about is this his line of communication. And I think for Gneisenau, it's important to remember that he'd seen this happen many times before. <laughs> um, whereas Wellington was obviously worried about it as well and he had an understanding but Gneisenau has come in for quite a lot of criticism for you know worrying about sporting Wellington um, and whether that would lead to his line of communications being cut off but I think that's fairly legitimate worry when he'd seen it happen before um, and you know Prussia had been absolutely crushed in the past by poor decision making and poor staff work um, and Gneisenau was basically not knowing what's going to happen had to really worry about his lines of communication as well so essentially the allies between the two of them are in a difficult situation coming from basically almost exactly opposite directions and their lines of communication um, meant that this was a big worry and, and also famously I think it's interesting with Napoleon's strategy of the central position that usually occurred um, as part of ongoing um, operational movements within a campaign um, where uh, for example he had cut lines of communication before then switching to uh, conduct um, the strategy of the central position. So it was reasonable to think that he'd maybe cut one of their lines of communication and then proceed to split the two armies um, 
which I think is an important point to remember that um, it's not as obvious that he should just launch in to try and split the two armies. It's actually probably more logical, like both Wellington and the Prussians sort of thought that he would swing one way or the other to try and cut one of the lines of communication, which is an interesting what if of the campaign as well, because maybe that would have worked. Absolutely, and I think that definitely um, kind of tempers Eisenhower's kind of scepticism of the Anglo-Dutch army and, and makes that withdrawal to Wagner in the wake of Ligny so much more surprising, I always think, because actually in doing that, you have to sort of sacrifice a lot of the, the, the communication with Liège. So is it fair to say that it's the staffs in a large part that determine Allied victory in the campaign? Yes, well, um, I mean, I think I would say that, wouldn't I? Because that's my... <laughs> I've been spending a few years trying to research this in general, but um, I think the Waterloo campaign um, is a very good, if not the best example of where in Napoleonic warfare staff work is absolutely crucial. But I think in all campaigns, it is absolutely crucial um, and as, in, as crucial in all of them, really. But um, it shows very much when uh, problems start to happen and staffs don't function, that that can really lead to a campaign unravelling. Um, as it does um, for Napoleon. And I think, like, like one of your earlier questions, one of the big issues is coming o coming, overcoming problems um, that aren't necessarily foreseen um, and how best staff, staff work can react to that um, is, a key, is a key point. Um, and for the, for the French, things really do unravel for salt. Um, and just basic staff work um, that should have been done in terms of sending duplications of orders is a real issue. Um, which Berthier was actually famous for in terms of units that didn't necessarily need to know what was happening everywhere and would often be sent um, information of how units were moving that weren't to do with them um, so they could at least have a good, good sort of situational awareness. Whereas Salt, uh, not only does he not just tell units that don't necessarily need to know, he doesn't tell crucial people, um, you know, most, most importantly, Ney, for example, um, what the situation is which, you know, doesn't actually take that much, you know, he's got a whole um, series of staff officers working with him, so that their whole job is to copy orders and send duplicates. Um, you know, it's, it's not an issue of time, it's an issue of thinking what, what needs to be, what needs to be done. And he really needed to have been keeping everyone afoot of the developments of the campaign, even if it was happening fast. Um, you know, rather than sending one letter, you send two, the same letter um, to different people. And that, that was important. And, Basic things like the French staff having poor mounts is mentioned in terms of, you know, riders delivering these messages. Um, and obviously you've got the usual problems of people getting getting lost or killed, etc. Um, which is unfortunate. But again, duplicate orders where you send the same order twice to the same person, etc., to make sure it gets through. Um, all these things um, really unravel for the Allies. But I mean there's also serious mistakes on um, unravel from Napoleon, sorry, but there's also serious mistakes for the Allies. Um, throughout the campaign. So it's not all one-sided, but um, Napoleon's staff really struggle with the campaign. I think that's a major issue that determines the campaign. And you can see this at a number of points um, throughout the, the 100 days campaign that um, causes issues for Napoleon and essentially chances that he may have had of securing victory in that theatre um, are sort of squandered away, unfortunately, due to mainly due to poor staff work. Yeah, I mean, it's quite surprising that Salt makes that mistake of not duplicating messages because he served in the peninsula where 
famously one of the reasons that Wellington had an advantage, there were a few of them, but was the fact that the guerrillas were often intercepting most, if not all, of the French communications. And so therefore, surely he must have kind of known of the need to duplicate correspondence and, and send multiple versions. Yeah, I mean, that, that's certainly true. And I think maybe, maybe Salt thought, um, you know, as everything was happening in such close proximity for the 100 days that, um, you know, he could quickly um, get people up to speed with what was happening. Or I think Salt probably thought he had more, more control than he actually did in terms of, or if something needed changing, he could be the one to react and change it. But, uh, and that wasn't worked because Ney needed to know what was happening on his right um, in the distance way. And he obviously couldn't um, know from where he was, um, apart from the noise, what was happening. So it was, um, it wasn't just, I think Salt thought he was in control when that wasn't job it was to make sure everyone knew what was going on and he could at least direct things and just didn't react like a general could react in terms of changing his ideas. Salt's role was to keep everyone up to date with what was happening and keep the orders process going um, rather than him you know having some information then starting to think about what to do. So I think it feeds back to Salt not understanding his role is quite different from being a, a marshal in command of an army to being a chief of staff, you see what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. We've touched on this already. Napoleon famously stole a march on the Allies in the Waterloo campaign. And there was this dramatic, almost kind of cliche Hollywood star moment where Wellington found out about the, ex the, the, the seriousness of Napoleon's advance. There have been rumours, obviously, earlier during the day. Um, but he finds out at the, the Duchess of Richmond's ball and the ball, for various reasons, seems to sort of feature quite prominently in the tale of Waterloo afterwards and appears in almost every period drama. The most recent examples will be, everyone know, will be Vanity um, Fair and Belgravia. How important do you think the ball is in the story of the campaign and, and how we kind of remember it? Yeah, I know. It's um, interesting how often the Duchess of Richmond's ball is um, featured in the narrative and as you say, period dramas. But I think, understandably, it's sort of romantic side of the story and how everything um, develops. And it's um, an, in, an interesting event that happens just on the eve of, well, as the campaign's already started. Um, so I think, naturally, it, it fits into a lot of people's um, stories about Waterloo. And it, it, it is key um, to the campaign in terms of Wellington's there and hearing, um, and hearing news and reacting to developments. But I think, you know, in recent years, there's been... Um, various um, revisions of our understanding of uh, the ball. I mean, famously, you know, there were other balls going on in Brussels and it wasn't that unusual that the ball was happening. That's well known now. Um, it was taking place in a coach house. That was well, that's well known now. Um, it's running the road, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Unfortunately, <laughs> it's, um, yeah, it'd be good to be able to go and visit it these days, but it's unfortunate you can't. <laughs> um, and also this, the thing about Wellington hearing the news, it's, it's known, you know, that Wellington was well aware before the ball even happened and um, that Napoleon was on the move and things were happening. Um, it's just he found different bits of news, famously the Prince Orange's ABC coming with more news. Um, it is a key thing. And so there are also some important points um, about the ball that sometimes um, are sort of a bit overlooked or overplayed or whatever. But um, it certainly was the case that the Duchess of Richmond's ball 
was a sort of farewell ball for the army. I mean, there are letters before the ball um, where people are going to the ball saying the Ducks of Richmond um, is hosting this ball for the army before it goes off on campaign. So a lot of people that say, you know, this just interrupted one of the many balls um, that are happening in Brussels. Um, it was understood that it was a farewell ball, but probably that the army would be moving on the 20th of June, um, so a few days later. Um, but it wasn't the case that, you know, there was just a series of balls that were interrupted uh, by the news of Napoleon moving. Um, I think also a lot of people tend to say that, you know, everyone who's everyone was there at the ball and it was this, um, you know, grand assembly of everyone who's important. But there was lots of people that were either invited that didn't attend the ball or that didn't, you know, attend for whatever reason, not being invited. And there were, you know, a number of important people that didn't go. Um, from my perspective, Delancey, um, who's invited, um, doesn't attend um, because he's busy knowing that Napoleon's started his campaign, trying to get everyone mobilised, ready for um, where they might need to move to. Um, and this is also true with, uh, you know, commanders at lower levels. Um, so that it's not the case that everyone, that's everyone's there. And this also feeds into this, the thing about Wellington briefing up his commanders um, at the ball because obviously I think most famously but in most dramas as well it's, it's repeated but famously in the 1970 film uh, Wellington has a series of um, an, un an unusual selection of commanders that he has in his room for some reason um, from different levels of command from sort of battalion commanders up to corps commanders but he um, you know famously they circle the map about him going to be at Waterloo etc um, but this isn't really the case of him doing a big briefing um, at uh, the ball because all he really does from the accounts we have, there's one Coldstream officer um, who says about um, the Duke of Richmond and Wellington, just the two of them being in a room talking about um, the Waterloo position. But, um, you know, the Duke of Richmond's basically got nothing to do with um, the campaign in the military sense. Um, and there's no other commanders or senior staff present there. So this idea of some briefing people up um, has been definitely overplayed in the past. Um, yes, he does speak to a few commanders individually at the ball, um, but there's no sort of grand, um, you know, gathering of commanders that he then launches his campaign. It's um, very much hit, um, him hearing the news then, you know, Delancey and the staff working through the night to get everyone moving um, is, is the key point, really. Um, but yeah, I think the most important point is certainly that Wellington is surprised by how fast Napoleon has moved. And this goes back to one point I was saying about the tempo of the campaign. Um, and I think that's the absolutely crucial point that we take from uh, the ball, which is, you know, Wellington being humbugged um, is, is a very true um, account of, you know, he probably said that, but also it's certainly what had happened because he knew Napoleon was moving long before the ball. Well, you know, before the ball, he knew that he'd be moving and and the news that came, how far up he'd got, uh, very much chicken by surprise. So it was, um, that, that's the importance really of the ball, I think, is um, the speed with which Napoleon's armies moved. With all the officers having to go back to their regiments, do you think it was helpful in the sense that they took the news of how serious the situation was with them? Or do you think the delay that they actually had to go back to their units and had to go and find their units to, for the units to then be able to move the hindrance. Do you, do you think that one kind of balances out the other or is there a um, that? I, yeah I think from, from a staff work perspective I don't think it really makes that much difference because um, how much they actually knew 
what the news was coming. You know, when there wasn't a grand announcement about what happened. Um, and by the time um, a lot of those officers got back to their, you know, a lot of them were based in and around Brussels anyway. By the time they got back, you know, they were joining the troops that were moving anyway. And the orders for those troops to move to wherever they were going would have come from the Lancey's headquarters. Um, and so in reality, a lot of the officers, especially the more junior ones, would have just left the ball knowing something was happening. And then by the time they found their way to their formations, which were either already on the move or not even on the move yet, they would have heard, you know, from a roundabout way, orders will have come into that formation that they then heard where they were going to. So I think it was sort of probably two separate things of, yeah, they knew something, but they certainly wouldn't have known where they were going, you know, where they were, exactly they were going to in terms of, you know, different small positions in the um, in that theatre and um, the orders will have come from Delancey to um, the different formations and we you know hear of all the officers writing out duplications of the um, orders for the army to get moving and, and assemble it at its assembly point so um, yeah I think the orders will have gone um, through Delancey and not they wouldn't have really heard from the ball itself. And when we talk about vital turning points in the campaign one of the favourite things to discuss is the sort of what-ifs of Catrafrau and Ligny and how they turn up differently. Staff work ends up being quite crucial for both, doesn't it? Yes, it does. Um, I mean, start it, I mean, because obviously sort of a twin battle going on both on the 16th, so it's a lot going on between the three armies and the battlefields are, you know, close enough to each other that they're very much affecting what's happening at each one. But um, starting with the British at Capture Bra, or the Allies, I should say, um, obviously a crucial thing which is interesting where someone uh, manages to react without really um, staff work playing an important role in terms of they weren't authorised to is obviously Saxe-Weimar's decision to stand at Capra, um, which is absolutely crucial um, to the campaign and how that develops and Père Ponchet um, reinforcing him with his um, second Netherlands division and you know shoring up that position is absolutely crucial. Um, one of the really interesting things I found relating to the Waterloo campaign in my PhD research um, is about who Père Ponchet was. And he'd actually served in the British Army, um, firstly in Egypt, but before that he'd been dealing with British liaison officers who had been attached to um, the Archduke Charles's headquarters in the Austrian Army for years before that. Um, and that was probably how um, Lord Proby uh, convinced um, Père Ponchet to enter the British service. Um, but and he also served in the Walsh expedition. But before that, he'd served in the Corona campaign, um, and interestingly, in the Quartermaster General's Department um, with Delancey um, and Hardidge, the um, liaison officer with the Army. And Père Ponchet, I mean, this campaign had been crucial for the development for the Quartermaster General's Department's way of working. Père Ponchet uh, would have known Delancey very well, but also. The, the Allied system of working, and he'd, um, you know, he took this crucial decision to back up Saxe Weimar's brigade and shore up the position. And um, you know, Del him and Delancey, and also Abercrombie um, of that of Prince of Orange's first corps, Quartermaster General, they all, you know, knew how each other worked. And I think that was a crucial point that the Allies were actually there were various individuals who knew each other within that army, and it wasn't just a case of them being thrown together to completely work, but. Um, in terms of staff work, um, they don't actually have authorization to stand there, but that's a crucial decision where they go against 
um, the decision. Um, for the Prussians at Ligny, um, obviously, Gneisenau's main priority is trying to get um, the Prussian army assembled. Um, obviously, uh, Napoleon strikes first of all, and they're pulling back, and he's trying to pull the other three Prussian corps um, into uh, Zeeton, moving back to um, Ligny. Um, and he has difficulty with Berlo's fourth corps trying to bring them in. Um, so there's, there's, there are various difficulties for the Prussians and um, trying to assemble their um, forces quick enough um, at Ligny. Um, that's an issue. But I think um, obviously Napoleon has real issues with both these battles with staff work and um, because Derlon's corps um, famously is moving between the two battlefields and isn't um, involved in either battle, um, either sort of helping Ney to um, push up the road and get that vital line of communication between Gatchara and Ligny. Um, but then um, more, even more importantly, really, doesn't come crashing in um, on the Prussians at Ligny, which would have probably, um, in, in the least case, it would have definitely meant they'd have had to move to the east towards the age because they'd have been blocked by uh, Derlon, um, who would have been on that side of them. But even more importantly, it may have even, you know, struck a crushing blow on the Prussians, which would have really knocked them out, um, either in the short term or even the long term. And that the poor way in which Derlon's managed by Salt um, is really crucial to those two battles, um, which would have had an effect to either of them, especially um, against the Prussians at Ligny. So staff work's absolutely crucial um, for all, all the different armies in that in those battles, but um, the French really managed to mess that up the most in terms of staff work, which has a big impact on the campaign. So where does the blame lie? Is that Napoleon? Is that Soult? Is that Erlon himself? Is it Ney? Yeah, I mean, the, the fault really lies in breakdown of the system full stop, because um, you get a lot of people getting involved with what Derlon should be doing. Um, whereas, you know, the actual system should have been Berthier um, hearing Napoleon's thoughts and then directing all the different corps commanders um, how to operate. Whereas Derlon's basically stuck in the middle of hearing messages, you know, some messages sent directly from Napoleon who's written in pencil, sent, given it to one of his ADCs and told him to, you know, Sent, give that to Derlon, whereas the system should really have been sort at least knew what was happening um, and in an ideal world actually was sending the orders himself. And um, so Napoleon interrupting, I mean, again, shows Napoleon's lack of trust in Salt um, getting involved with that. And, and also Salt really messes up informing Ney of what the situation is. And um, whereas had Ney known, you know, that Derlon was now desperately needed back at um, Ligny to you know, um, strike the final blow, then Ney may have understood what was going on a bit more. But obviously Ney just hears that Derlon's now not coming to support him and he's absolutely furious because he doesn't know why this is or what's happened there. Um, so I think Salt, Salt is really to blame, but there's also just the whole system is obviously fractured anyway. So I think, um, yeah, you could blame Salt, but the whole, the whole system isn't working very well. Absolutely. Let's talk about Waterloo itself, because for Wellington, Wellington's force, the staff work on the surface at least, seems to be fairly limited. Is that fair? 
Yeah, so it's interesting. I mean, from a staff perspective, all three of the armies, the staffs are, are sort of working pretty much flat out to try and deal with the situation. And they've each got their own problems to deal with. But um, I think the British have got you know, a lot of work to do, as well, the Allies, um, Wellington's army's got a lot of work to do, um, just as the other armies have. Um, I mean, first, first and foremost, when Wellington realises that the Prussians are going to have to give way um, at Ligny, um, he has to sort of start organising his, and his staff have to organise the withdrawal, which is a big issue. Um, they do quite an effective job of this, using different routes um, to pull back to Mont Saint-Jean Ridge. Um, and then from a staff works point of view, um, Delancey's really busy drawing up the, the Allied army and its order of battle ready for um, the following day, obviously firstly into its bivouacs and then ready for the next morning, how they'll actually form up. So all of this isn't just, um, you know, Wellington talking to commanders, it's all staff officers um, and different officers from different formations in the Quartermaster General's department um, receive their instructions and then have to assemble the army. So before the battle even starts, the Quartermaster General's department, as always, is really important in drawing up the order of battle, um, making sure everyone everyone's where they should be. And there's quite a lot of, in the early stages of the battle, shifting around of troops um, to best place them. And then as the battle develops, I mean, all the major decisions, um, Delancey is involved with uh, relaying what's happening, and whether it's sort of bringing up the heavy cavalry, for example, um, you know, that's an order from the Quartermaster General's Department. Um, interestingly, there's a good account of um, officers from the Quartermaster General's Department actually setting out the checkerboard formation of the squares. Um, so when the cavalry um, come to attack, obviously each individual unit forms its own square, but in, a, in the bigger picture of things, those squares have to be in that famous checkerboard formation so they can each fire on the, on the cavalry. And it's the Quartermaster General's Department that actually places the squares um, you know, behind the ridge in the in the correct um, pattern that they can do that, and it, um, which obviously needs a lot of coordination. So the other fire on each other, wouldn't they? Yeah, exactly. Um, or it'd be fairly ineffective in terms of they just couldn't fire um, because they were so close to each other. Yeah, so it's, it's a really important point that they have to do. And also dealing with allied units, you know, um, the Brunswick Corps, for example, they have to deal with them and make sure they're all... Um, knowing what to what the system and how the system's going to work. So it's not just British units, and um, there's all sorts of units they've got to deal with. And then importantly with the staff is obviously the liaison with the Prussians and how they're getting on coming across. Um which uh you know muffling does a good job from the Prussian side of things relating to Wellington, uh, what's happening. Hardage, um who's actually wounded on the sixteenth um, the officer from the Quartermaster General's Department with Blucher, um, he doesn't do such a good job in relaying what's happening um, from his side of, the, of, side of things. Um, but at least there is an understanding of what uh, the Prussian developments are and, and crucially that they've got the right side of Grouchy and his formation. Um, and that understanding really, um, you know, the, um, the battle in terms of what Welling, you know, Wellington knows he needs to hang on because... Um, the Prussians are soon going, so it's um, all that is done through staff work, um, and knowing that is crucial. And Delancey himself was mortally wounded at the battle, um, which is um, a major issue, obviously, for the Allies. And um, his deputy, um, Felton Harvey, takes over, um, 
during the battle um, but that's obviously a bit of a blow to the from a practical sense um how the staff's working during the battle um and felton harvey freddie an experienced staff officer although very experienced soldier um takes up the takes up uh, the quartermaster general's one which is um something new that i sort of found out recently that's not, not normally and most people confuse felton harvey being an adc of wellington's and which he becomes after the battle um so uh, yeah he takes over as the department and has to run run that in the general advance at the end of the battle he's directing how the advance happens while napoleon is um moving you know his army's basically broken and when it comes to the prussians their focus for obvious reasons has to be moving men as swiftly as possible from Bath to waterloo those listeners who will have read bernard cornwall's sharps waterloo will remember that he suggests that Eisenhower deliberately delayed the arrival of the prussians for fear that Wellington would break and run and the Prussians would kind of be caught up in this and be encircled by Napoleon and as a result of that he implies that Eisenhower ordered the units furthest away from Waterloo to march first so it affected it longer um, for the Prussians to, to move off. Is there any truth in that? I mean there's elements of truth in the sense of I don't really accept the idea that now deliberately delayed the turn up for Waterloo. I mean he um, he did it for sort of actual practical reasons. It wasn't just a case of let's just hedge, hedge our bets. I mean, Gneisenau certainly had uh, reservations about, um, you know, whether the British or the Allies would, um, you know, how closely they'd back up what Prussian, the Prussians are doing. And he was very well aware in, in the past that, um, you know, if he leaves his lines of communications open, um, that, that could be a very risky issue for the Prussians. And as you say, um, if Napoleon um, won and then turned on them, then they'd be in a very difficult situation. Um, but in terms of the delay, I mean, he decides to move Burlow's Fourth Corps, um, which is the furthest from the battle towards Waterloo. Um, but this is does have practical reasons. Um, most famously, the fact that they've not really been engaged means that they're the strongest corps. And by the time they do actually get to Waterloo, they're obviously, that's obviously a big strength in terms of um, you know, they're fresh for the fight. Um, although, having said that, Burlow's Corps had done a lot of marching um, during the campaign, and so um, in that sense was sort of really quite a weak choice in terms of getting them to move quickly across pretty difficult terrain. So um, he chose to move Burlow's um, Fourth Corps. Um, nice and I was coming for criticism in terms of not getting the other corps to move out the way and um, to let them through. I mean, that, that's true, that's, you know, potentially an issue with the staff work for the Prussians, but, um, you know, how much, that obviously does cause some delay, but how much it's a serious de delay is probably a bit debatable. That it, was, it was very difficult going anyway, what, even when they got through um, the formations that were in the way, it was the terrain that really caused issues as well as the fire, um, you know, blocking the way that there was various different issues that caused the delay. So I think there was, there certainly was a delay. Um, nice, I was a bit wary of the Allies. Um, and Wellington, how much he'd back him up. But at the end of the day, Nice was loyal um, to what happened to what, um, and Wellington requested specifically two corps to join um, on his left flank. And the Prussians effectively do provide those two corps, um, one on his left flank and one um, coming basically in Napoleon's rear in the, at Pont-Senoir. So, um, okay, it may have taken slightly longer, but at least, and they did get there in the end. And I don't think. 
right now deliberately delayed it because he was um, purely because he was um, wary, just um, needed to get the best troops over there and also make sure that, you know, he didn't leave himself too vulnerable. And that's a, that's fair enough. Um, any chief of staff that didn't do that would have been very seriously criticised. So I think um, being a little bit cautious and um, making sure everything happened, um, you know, correctly was was important. And there were some issues, but I don't think it was purely that he was just not willing to help the, uh, the Allies in Wellington. So I think that's an unfair criticism, really. So I think it's important that we rehabilitate Mazenau's reputation amongst sharp fans. Because if nothing else, the move to Bath shows that he was prepared to support uh, the the, the Anglo-Dutch army. Because of course, at the point at which the army has to pull the Prussian army has to pull back, Blucher had been knocked off his horse, leading a cavalry charge. So there's this mm. gap where they have to work out what do we do? Do we pull towards Liège, or do we pull back to Bath? And Nisenauer is a key player in that decision-making process. Yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, luckily with the, the Prussian system, the chief of staff was quite a crucial person, but Gleisner makes that crucial decision to move north rather than east. Um, and that, that's, no one, that's on no one else's shoulders other than Gleisner. So I think um, he deserves a lot of credit for that. Um, I think with a lot of his decision-making, um, there's been a lot, you know, people have tried to work out whether he was trying to be loyal to Wellington or, on the other hand, disliked the British and just therefore just didn't want to help Wellington. But I think at the end of the day, Geisau was a highly professional staff officer um, who'd fought the fought Napoleon for years and years and years. And his idea was how do we best beat Napoleon? Um, and there wasn't really anything more to it than that. He was trying to be a professional soldier um, who would achieve that the best he could. Um, and he was trying to work out the best way of doing that. And the best way of doing that did was to move north and be in contact with Wellington's army. So I think people tried to work out his motivations, but I think his overall motivation was how do I best um, conduct this campaign? And the best way of doing that was staying as in contact with Wellington's army and trying to support each other. One of the mistakes on the Prussian side that people do play up quite a lot is the fact that a quarter of Thielman's Corps, which is the corps that was left behind to cover the Prussian rear mm -hmm. from attack by Bruce at Vavre, yeah. um, ended up marching off with the main Prussian army. How big an impact do you think that had in reality? Yeah, that's um, an interesting point. I mean, Grouchy has a very difficult day in terms of um, working out what he's meant to be doing. And he has, um, you know, he thinks he's doing the right thing, but um, obviously everything turns out to go wrong. But whose thought that is, is another whole question. But yeah, the Prussian Third Corps, where interestingly Krauswitz is the chief of staff, um, they do, they do um, obviously try and hold up Grouchy um, at Rav and uh, manage to effectively keep Grouchy from joining Waterloo. So I think at the end of the day, yes, there, there were certainly lots of small issues that um, went wrong for all the, all the staff um, of all three armies. Um, but at the end of the day, the Prussian Third Corps managed to keep Grouchy at bay from uh, joining the battle and that was their most important point and also managed to stop them interrupting too much with the Prussian move um, over to support Wellington. So at the end of the day, yeah, there were maybe smaller elements that weren't in hindsight uh, dealt with the best they could have been, but their overall objective was achieved of keeping Grouchy at bay from, inf from interfering with the Prussian move across. 
Yeah. I mean, film is cool, did remarkably well when you consider that on paper, it looks to be the weakest of the, the four core that Prussia fielded. I mean, when you look at the, the regiments um, that made up the core, um, you've got four standard infantry regiments and then six of them are land there. So they're effectively mm -hmm. slightly better than militia and it's, it's had very little artillery. Um, yeah. So Thielman's Corps did remarkably well to hold off a much larger force in Grusha. Yes, okay, they had the river line, which helped with um, that process in terms of holding them back. But you know, they, they equipped themselves fairly well. Yeah, yeah. And also you can see, obviously, yeah, they have a good defensive position at Rav, and um, but Gr Grushi's force, um, you know, is pushing them, and you can understand a bit more Gneisenau's issue of, you know, if Napoleon does win the battle, which from Grushi's point of view, he sort of thinks um, maybe Napoleon is winning the battle, and he, you know, even reads potentially this message from Napoleon that he's won the Battle of Waterloo, that um, had that happened, Gneisenau would have been in a very difficult situation his army would have been strung out, um, you know, quite distances between Third Corps, as you say, trying to hold off Grouchy and then Berlo's Corps at um, Plonsonoir. So it'd have been pretty difficult had that happened. And you can understand, going back to an earlier question about how Gneisenau was worried about moving to support Wellington in the way that they did. I mean, it turned out well, but um, yeah, with the Third Corps' rearguard action at Warav, you know, had had they been trying to hold off Grouchy there and then Napoleon had turned on a strung out army, um, could have been a very difficult situation for the Prussians. So Gneisenau had to very much gamble that um, it all paid off and luckily it did. So how close do you think Napoleon came to winning the campaign? <laughs> yeah, that's a big, big question. Um, I mean, I think Napoleon did come close. In, in the early stages, it, you know, the surprise with which he invaded Belgium, that was excellent. And um, the concept of the strategy of the central position was, you know, pretty well, um, it was a pretty good idea. Whether he could have cut one of the lines of communication, as I say, may have potentially been another way of doing it. But his, his concept of the central position had worked so many times before. Um, that I think that that was good. So on the 16th, where he had um, an encounter battle going on at Catrebra with Wellington's army and he'd got the Prussians at Ligny. Um, had had Derlon's corps really been committed to knocking out the Prussians at Ligny, I think that was a key moment in the campaign and where he came close to um, potentially knocking out at least one of the armies. I mean, who knows what would have happened afterwards. Um, and then similarly, you know, at Waterloo, um, you know, Grouchy's force being quite a large force, just holding off the Prussians and not contributing, that was also difficult. And, you know, Napoleon did come close to knocking Wellington off the ridge um, had the Prussians not turned up. So if Grouchy had managed to either hold the Prussians away or maybe come to help, I mean, his crucial point would have been to hold the Prussians away, Napoleon could have, could have won then as well. So I think both on the 16th and the 18th there were chances for Napoleon. I mean, it's a much bigger question of had he won the campaign, you know, what would have happened with all the Austrians and Russians coming? Um, but I think that can sometimes be overplayed as well in terms of it would have been a big blow if Wellington or, or and or Blucher had been defeated. Um, you know, the Allies would have definitely had to think again in terms of, you know, these are very efficient commanders and, you know, 
okay armies that they, that were fighting. And if they'd been knocked out by Napoleon, that would have been a serious, um, you know, blow to the Seventh Coalition. So what's the point where you feel he lost it? Because for me, I always kind of look at the wake of Ligny that evening, but then also the morning after, and question whether or not after that opportunity had been lost, of he'd almost driven that wedge between Wellington and Blücher. The Prussians hadn't as much as he thought, but they were pulling back. He had that opportunity to either pounce on Wellington or pursue the Prussians potentially, and it all depends on how tired his forces were and so on, but potentially pursue the, the Prussians a bit more vigorously. For me, that, that's where the Waterloo campaign is lost because by not capitalising on that situation, it gave the Prussians that time to pull back, gather themselves a little bit and then move across to Port Wellington. And the fact that Wellington wasn't heavily engaged in Africa, albeit because they didn't really have the orders to, to do so, Wellington was able to pull back himself and, and occupy a position at Mont Saint-Jean, which he might not have been able to do had he been um, been pursued actively engaged at Catrebra. Mm. So for me, that that's where it it's won and lost. What was your reading of it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a very difficult one in terms of pinpointing um, exact points in the campaign where it's sort of won and lost. And I think it's a big question. I mean, certainly agree that uh, yeah, there are issues. I mean, I think the biggest for me is at Ligny had Derlon's call come crashing in. And to really knock out the Prussians, that was an absolutely crucial point. Yeah, um, absolutely. As well as, on, as I say, as well on, on the 18th, if Grouchy had kept the Prussians away, um, that may have also been a crucial point as well. But I think overall, rather than a specific point, I think it was more the the, the, the staff system itself was um, a large part to play in the, the overall um, what what happened. And I think the the weakness of the of salt and the French staff system compared to the um, comparative effectiveness of the Allied staff systems, which had a lot of issues that didn't go well, and they had a lot of people that made difficult decisions that you know didn't always work out well. But I think at the end of the day, it's who um, managed to do the best in a difficult situation in terms of the different staffs, and the French really struggled to coordinate what was needed at the various as you say different points where he may have won the campaign at each of those the staff was crucial in um meaning that they didn't weren't executed as well as well as they should have been um so i think yeah at, at the different points it, it often comes down to poor staff work that prevented chances that may have um worked out from actually coming off potentially and i'm not trying to put words in your mouth it could have been so much different if Berthier had sided with Napoleon? Yes, exactly. I mean, there's obviously the famous quote where Napoleon famously, you know, blames the fact or laments about the fact that Berthier wasn't there and that may have been why he lost. And I know, you know, critics of Napoleon, you know, may say, oh, you know, Napoleon's looking for any sort of excuse to explain why he didn't win, but at the end of the day, he didn't win. Um, but I think... You know, even outside of who Napoleon was and how he didn't um, admit to a lot of his flaws, I think even even with that in mind, Berthier was so crucial to how Napoleon's army had worked um, 
since you know the 1796 campaign in Italy been absolutely crucial um, had Bertier been there I'm not saying Napoleon would have won there was a, n- a number of um, issues that still had to be overcome it was a very difficult situation but um, I think Napoleon would have had a much more better chance of winning at least um, and certainly things have been very different I mean like we keep saying about the Durlon's Corps, that just wouldn't have happened. They would have been um, committed to one or the other of the battles had Berthier been there um, and various other decisions during the campaign that um, would have gone a lot a lot smoother had Berthier been there. So, yeah, I think it would have helped Napoleon and who knows whether he'd have won or not. <laughs> and just to finish off, what does Waterloo mean to you personally? Um, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, obviously... This is the culmination of the Napoleonic Wars, um, which is such a fascinating period. Um, and really sums up a lot of the issues that have been going on throughout those um, those wars. Um, and from a staff point of view, you know, the typical frictions of war and how uh, so many issues can impinge on how a campaign develops. So I think Waterloo is a really good um, example of that. Um, Waterloo is really interesting and important in terms of Britain's standing in the world and, and in Europe and um, because when the Congress of Vienna you know continues after the hundred days Britain's in a very different situation to um, how it'd been b- before the hundred days started and you know it got the key things it needed such as the balance of power in Europe um, and you know that basically and, it, and its own standing in Europe and that basically set it up for sort of global expansion after um, Waterloo. So Waterloo is an absolutely crucial moment in sort of British history um, and similarly for the other countries you know Prussia um, you know going back right to Jena and Auschwitz in 1806 being humiliated but Waterloo being the end of the Napoleonic Wars where Prussia had beaten the French but this set up you know a long rivalry between um, France and Germany that um, you know would eventually continue into the you know the Franco-Prussian War the First World War and beyond that so um, I think that's crucial and you know France is cultural um you know history as well it's important with Waterloo in terms of going back to yeah, the French Revolution but also the Napoleon legend um and that Waterloo massively feeds into that so I think a big part of French identity um Waterloo is really important um and you know it's just overall a defining moment in European history so I think and there's a lot Waterloo is very important for a whole number of reasons um not just staff work <laughs> Absolutely. Well, it's been so good to have you on and to talk through such a, a complex um, system that had so much impact on the way in which the Waterloo campaign unfolded. Thank you so much for being Waterloo Remembered. Yeah, great. Thank you very much for having me, Zach. That was the historian Will Fletcher joining me to discuss the three styles of command during the Waterloo campaign. You can follow Will online on Twitter at 1815 Fletcher. There's loads of content being released today as part of the Waterloo Remembered programme. Remember that today our live tweets of the campaign have started, giving you an insight into what was happening in real time 205 years ago. We're also starting the Voices from the Battlefield series, the 41 readings of eyewitness testimony from across the campaign and from so many perspectives, British, Dutch, Prussian, Belgian, French, soldiers, civilians. You can catch it all here on The Napoleonicist. And today we're releasing the first 10 
of those eyewitness accounts. So make sure you have a listen to those. Also remember that we want you to get involved in the discussion online, either in the forum at the napoleonicwars.net, where there is that dedicated Waterloo Remembered room, or you can post on Twitter. Remember to use the hashtag Waterloo Remembered and share your thoughts on what Waterloo means to you, why you think the battle matters. Ask your questions. Remember to tag Will if you have questions about what he said in today's interview. And if you've been to the battlefield, share your experiences. Perhaps post some photos. If you know of a Waterloo veteran's grave near you, then post a photo. And again, use that hashtag Waterloo Remembered so that we can all come together to be a part of this Remembrance special. There won't be an interview tomorrow because we're going to focus specifically on the Voices from the Battlefield releases and of course those live tweets will continue as we focus on the battles of Catrebra and Ligny which were so crucial to how the Waterloo campaign unfolded. On the 17th I will be back with an interview with Beatrice de Graaf and Jacqueline Reiter on Waterloo's legacy so make sure you join us for that. Until then I'm Zach White this has been Waterloo Remembered from The Napoleonicist. Take care, my friends. Stay safe. And as ever, thank you for listening.